Good afternoon. I'm Miles O'Brien, Master of Ceremonies today. Welcome to Mars uh, and a whole new way of thinking about how and how soon human beings can explore the planet next door in person. The pilot admission to the Red Planet you'll hear about today is not the one that you've heard about in the past, the elaborate expensive landing schemes that we've all become accustomed to thinking about. It's a mission that will bring two humans within 100 miles of the surface of Mars, a flyby. It's a lean, and over the course of 501 days, I am sure it will be mean, mission. There are no technical or financial showstoppers that I can see. In fact, the beauty of this idea is its combination of simplicity, audacity, and liquidity. In fact, uh, Dennis Tito has a track record of thinking big and out of the box, not taking no for an answer, and then making history. More on him in a moment. But first, a word on the whys. Why Mars? Why now? Our neighboring planet has always captivated us. It is my second favorite planet, and our thirst for knowledge about it has led us to some pay dirt in recent years. In my lifetime, we've gone from a vague sense that the surface might be etched by canals, ringed by Martian condos, to a keen understanding that while the planet seems lifeless right now, it was once warm and wet, and thus a cushy birth for life. Now, we know this thanks to a successful series of robotic missions that have orbited or landed on Mars. The nuclear-powered Curiosity rover is the latest and most sophisticated member of this armada. But as capable as these robots are, we are approaching limits of science by remote control. A human geologist with a hammer and a magnifying glass may be the best way to finish solving the scientific riddle of life on Mars. But there are other reasons humans need to go there. If we don't seize the moment, we may miss the chance to become a multi-planet species. And sooner or later, humanity will cease to exist. There are, uh, there are always reasons not to do it. We can talk about the cost, the risks, and the rationale. Columbus or Magellan would never have left the harbor if they dwelled on these worries. Sometimes you just have to weigh anchor and shove off. And that's what Inspiration Mars is all about. Inspiration Mars is all about the first name. The goal is to inspire a sea change from talk into action. It is about inspiring our political leaders today to stop being timid and to fund a piloted mission that will get us to the surface. And if they won't do it, perhaps Inspiration Mars will convince their constituents or maybe their children that this is worth doing. Because the goal here is to send two people but take everyone along for the ride. Now, the launch date is January 2018. That is dictated by orbital mechanics. But the mission happens to coincide with the 500th anniversary of the start of Magellan's circumnavigation of Earth and the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 8 mission that put humans in the orbit of Moon. So the planets are literally coming into alignment to make this happen. And so has a great team. Tabor McCallum is the CEO of Paragon Space Development, which designs life support and thermal control systems for commercial piloted spacecraft. He spent two years living and working inside the Biosphere 2 experiment from 91 till 93. He is the chief technology officer for Inspiration Mars. Dr. Jonathan Clark is an associate professor of neurology and space medicine at Baylor College in Houston. He worked at NASA from 97 till 2005 and served as a space shuttle crew surgeon for six missions. He is the chief medical officer. And Jane Pointer 
is the co-founder and president of Paragon. She also was a member of the Biosphere 2 team. She's an expert on sustaining human life in a closed-loop environment. Which brings us to the leader of the team and the man who put the inspiration into this idea. He began his career as an aerospace engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab at the age of 23. While serving at JPL, he was responsible for designing trajectories, flybys, not coincidentally, for the Mariner spacecraft missions to Mars and Venus. In the spring of 2001, Tito served as a crew member on an eight-day Russian Soyuz taxi mission to the International Space Station. He was the first private citizen to fund his own trip to space. It was the realization of a 40-year dream for him, and he made some history. Today, he is Chief Executive Officer of Wilshire Associates, a leading provider of investment, management, consulting, and technology services. And he is the founder and president of the Inspiration Mars Foundation. Please welcome Dennis Tito. Well, thank you, Miles, for that wonderful uh, introduction, and thank you all for coming. This is a uh, much greater turnout than I would have ever expected. Of course, we're going to be talking about a human mission to Mars, uh, two people, a man and a woman, and we'll talk about uh, later why uh, it is a man and a woman. And uh, we will also talk about what was the motivation behind this study, how did or this mission. How did I get involved in this mission? But let me start out with making one thing clear. I will not be one of the crew members on this mission. And uh, if I were 30 years younger, I still would not be because the requirements are going to be so high, and you'll hear more about that. Uh, it's going to be quite a crew selection process. As uh, Miles mentioned, uh, I started my career doing flyby trajectories of Mars. I presented my first paper on a flyby mission to Mars at an aerospace conference in 1965. Sunday, I will be presenting my second paper on an <laughs> a flyby mission to Mars at an aerospace engineering conference. And the reason we actually decided to have the news conference is that since we were releasing this study, which we will talk about, to the public, it, it was appropriate at least to make these clarifications because I know when the news first came out that we, we had some publication that people thought that maybe I was going to fly on it, but uh, sorry. Uh, anyway, uh, that 50 years ago, uh, it was just like, really exciting uh, part of my life, and, and uh, you know, here we are, uh, you know, 50 years later, and I'm probably even more excited, and uh, to go full circle uh, like that is, uh, is, is really, I regard it as a, a privilege. Uh, but let's look at our current situation in the space program. Uh, in my view, having started in the robotic side at JPL, uh, we continue to make significant progress uh, with the Curiosity lander most recently, uh, the uh, Hubble telescope, the Voyager missions uh, to the outer planets. Uh, it's just been outstanding from a scientific standpoint. We have not made nearly the same progress in human spaceflight, particularly with respect to deep space. We had not 
send humans beyond the moon in 40 years. I've been waiting myself and a lot of other people my age have been waiting and waiting. And uh, I think it's time to uh, put an end to that uh, lapse. Also, one of the things about our uh, stated state space policy is that our goal is to eventually fly close to Mars in the mid-30s. Uh, well, I'll be 95 years old. I don't want to wait until that, that time. So how can we make this happen sooner? Uh, we need to do something innovative and exciting. Uh, we need to bridge the gap between the current ISS flights and the SLS Orion, which is our planned architecture for the future uh, uh, deep space human space flight. However, we cannot make this jump very easily. Space flight is very complex. There's a lot we have to learn. And the idea that we have is we need to have missions in between to gain engineering experience, to gain experience on the life sciences, on humans. How, are, how do humans behave when they get away from Earth? How do humans behave when they look out and see this pale blue dot that they can barely differentiate from a star? You know, what impact is that going to have on the crew? We need to learn that before we actually send a crew to land on Mars. So let me tell you about my efforts over the last year and a half. I decided to go back to the future, reinvent my trajectory skills. I started reading books, uh, programming trajectories on Excel, uh, learned things that I never really understood even when I was doing it 50 years ago. And I got interested in the idea of uh, lunar trajectories, possibly to fill in that would go beyond the moon but come back. And after doing that for a while, I uh, just started thinking, well, what about a Mars flyby? I'm, a, I'm really a flyby guy. So I went and I looked at the literature, and I found this paper. And I couldn't believe it. It was just uh, too good to be true. And if you could put the slide up, uh, it was a paper that was published uh, by Patel Languski and Sims, and it was called, called Mars Free Return Trajectories. It was published in 1996. Now, you can tell by the uh, beautiful graphics, it's vintage. And we didn't modify that at all. And it looks like uh, an inkblot uh, test, you know, from Psychology 101. But it, it actually shows on the vertical scale the flight times. And what you have to, you should notice, is on the, the lowest four dots, they represent uh, Mars flyby opportunities that are approximately 1.4 years in duration, approximately 500 days. And the time scale on the bottom, which is hard to see, you should know that the uh, time between each pair of dots is about two years, and the time between the dots themselves is repeats every 15 years. So the 2018 trajectory that we'll be talking about for this 
mission is the lower right-hand corner. And if you were going to extrapolate this graph ahead, the next opportunity would be 2031. Now, I like to use the expression low-hanging fruit for something that is easy to reach, the least expensive to reach, an opportunity. This perfectly depicts low-hanging fruit, those four dots on the bottom. And what we're suggesting is let's go for the 2018 opportunity because the, the planets realign, you know, every 15 years, and who wants to wait until 2031? Because by that time, we might have company. It's, it's a pretty easy mission, uh, which I'll explain in a minute. Easy in, in its simplicity, always difficult because it's a space mission. Uh, you, can see, you can see the diagram. Uh, this illustration uh, was obtained from the Internet. Someone picked up on our uh, uh, launch dates, was able to target the, tra the trajectory with their own software, came up with exactly the same numbers. So at least we know it works. And, uh, but they did a better job in the graphics uh, than we did in the paper. So if you, uh, you're going to, you have a copy of the paper in the uh, uh, press kit, so you'll notice that this graphic is a lot, lot nicer. So as Miles mentioned, we fly within 100 miles of Mars. I mean, that's essentially being there. Uh, it's just uh, that easy to go out swing by, use the gravitational uh, uh, shift of Mars, and come back to Earth, just like a boomerang. Uh, you don't have to have any propulsive maneuvers. It's really simple. Anyway, uh, still wanted to make sure that, you know, is, was this mission really doable? I hired, I decided to hire a team of experts to study critical areas to determine whether this mission would be feasible. And those areas were looking at the trajectory and, and payload requirements, life support, radiation, and thermal protection. We hired experts to work in all uh, four areas. Uh, we spent three months doing a lot of work. We decided to put it together in a paper, again, which we're presenting uh, on Sunday. And this paper, which is Feasibility Analysis, for a manned Mars free return mission actually provides the technical arguments for the fact that this is a doable mission. Now that the, the mission appeared feasible, where do we do next? Well, the first thing we did was we set up a nonprofit foundation, Inspiration Mars Foundation. So this is not a commercial mission. This is not a mission that if it's successful, I'm going to come out to be a lot wealthier. Let me guarantee you, I will come out a lot poorer as a result of this mission. But uh, my grandchildren will come out a lot wealthier through the inspiration that this will give them. Uh, we began the engineering on the critical path issues. Uh, we started doing engineering January 1. There is, there is no time to waste. We have a lot of work to do. And we're not going to do it working 8 to 5. We're going to have to burn the mid midnight oil. This is not going to be an easy mission to accomplish. We are launching on January 5th, 2018. Uh, 
We signed a Space Act agreement with NASA. We did that in, in record time. Uh, NASA Ames at Moffett Field in uh, California, they are experts in the reentry problem, which is going to be a huge uh, challenge for us. We're coming in at a very high reentry speed, higher, higher than has ever been done. So we're also working on the engineering. I hope they're working today. Uh, we ought to check in with them after this conference. And we're also entering discussions with academia regarding the life sciences issues, which uh, Dr. Clark will be talking about. It's, it's going to be a real challenge. The funding is another challenge. Uh, however, I have, fortunately, uh, being in the financial field, uh, for the last 40 years, uh, the name of the game there is to, is to raise money. And uh, even though uh, this is for space, I think it's for such a great mission. Uh, I'm very excited about going out there and um, you know, raising that money. And I don't think it's going to be uh, you know, a real uh, difficult problem, although I'm going to assume uh, that I'm going to spend a lot of my time doing that. We can raise money from private individuals, uh, charitable foundations, and, and one other source that we'll talk about later. Uh, we can raise money from media rights. Uh, hopefully we can sell some of our data to NASA. Of course, we'll charge them as much as we can. And uh, finally, I have made a personal commitment funding this mission for the next two years. Now, the bulk of the funding doesn't come in the first two years. It's in the latter part where you, when you buy the launch vehicle and the spacecraft, and uh, we're going to be using existing hardware, so we're not building a Saturn V rocket from scratch. We're using existing technology. We'll hear more about that. But we have funding until the end of 2014. Finally, uh, you know, people ask, you know, what the cost will be. Uh, you know, we can't come up with a number, but we know that the cost will be much, much lower than you would expect from a uh, Mars mission. It'll be more like a mission to low Earth orbit. Not that that's inexpensive, but it's, it's least in the dollar range that we can, uh, you know, comfortably raise the money. Uh, and I think the media rights are going to be uh, phenomenal because uh, just what I've seen so far, I can imagine, um, you know, Dr. Phil talking to this couple and solving their marital problems or whatever. Uh, it's going to be great, uh, great media rights. So uh, anyway, uh, you know, I'm uh, you know, just, you know, really excited about this. There are no showstoppers. You know, we're on a tight schedule. We've already started. We have funding to keep this going for two years out of my pocket. But anyway, uh, we should be able to raise the funds to complete the mission. Uh, it, this is a challenging but a, attainable goal for advancing human experience and knowledge. Now is the time. All right. We've got a timetable. We've got a little bit on the why, a little bit more about the hows now. This is a bold and risky mission. I guess that goes without saying. There is no way to abort once the spacecraft is on its way to Mars. 
So how do you build a craft that is up to that job? While in the biosphere, our next speaker was responsible for the design, implementation, and operation of the atmosphere and water management systems. And the company he co-founded, Paragon, is all about designing environmental control and life support systems for spacecraft. Please welcome Tabor McKellen. Thank you. So being in the business of extreme environment life support and space life support, you know, NASA has pretty routinely come to us and uh, we've worked on problems of deep space life support and water recycling and, and the like. And we, you know, also about once a month, somebody calls us up and they want to do something extreme like you know, dive in contaminated water with chemical warfare agents or deep underground in a habitat with contaminated air around them or, or uh, commercial space or you get the idea. Uh, and so, uh, you know, one day we, we get a call from Dennis. And he says, uh, I've worked out this trajectory, and, and I, th I think there may be a possibility here for a human mission. So, you know, here we go. It's, it's 1.4 years, no chance of abort. Uh, if something goes wrong, they're not coming back. Uh, we're going to go all the way out as far as Mars, we're almost half the sunlight, and then we're going to come back in as close as the orbit of Venus, almost twice the sunlight. And then we're going to re-enter at record speeds, 14.2 kilometers a second. Um, what do you think? So we were characteristically skeptical and sort of tried to talk him out of it and, and you know, brought up all the problems that, you know, we just read them all off. And usually that, that stops the prospective customer from sort of spending any more of our time. But there was one big difference. This was Dennis Tito, and he had his questions down. And he uh, it was a long call, and... Uh, a lot of very thoughtful questions, and we sort of kept pushing back. And uh, I think we were sort of egging him on at one point because uh, at the end of it, he says, all right, I want you guys to do a study. You're part of the team, and, and uh, we're going to go do this study and see if this is possible or not. Um, so we're looking at a, really a conceptual feasibility study, trying to find an existence proof of a suite of technologies, not all-encompassing, but show me one existence proof that this thing could really work, to fly this mission. Some of the ground rules were, this is gonna be a very austere mission. You don't necessarily have to follow all of NASA's guidelines for air quality and water quality. This is gonna be you know, a Lewis and Clark trip to Mars. You know, keep it bare bones, keep it simple. In fact, we want to eliminate all the automation we possibly can. Think of, think of under the hood in the 1955 Chevy, he kept on saying, and I'm gonna get you one of those Chevys if we do this mission. Um, but don't automate. We don't need to automate. The crew can repair and refurbish, you know, really make this a, a human-tended system. So we, you know, broke out the computer models and looked at one, two, and three, four crew. We looked at existing ISS technologies and advanced technologies and a range of, you know, redundancies and spare parts and, and sort of uh, came back and said, well, you know, one, one crew, one crew's good, um, but one crew doesn't make any sense because it's just not safe to have one person by themselves. So two crew. And uh, then it says, well, if it's going to be two crew, it's going to be a man and a woman. So we said, all right. Um, the baseline life support that we used in the paper is derived from ISS technology. ISS technology is being tested by NASA for you know, almost a decade now. Every day we learn more about it. It's very robust. We're looking at augmenting that potentially with technologies that NASA is developing uh, in a variety of locations that are simpler and just potentially more robust, and maybe we'll double them up. So we're, But we have a baseline configuration, and NASA is learning more about 
that life support system every day it flies in space. Um, so, uh, you know, repairability and reliability are, are obviously one of the key things that we need time to put the system together and then just run it and try to break it. So uh, we're under contract now to build that system and get uh, get it into a chamber and get people in that chamber, and you'll be hearing more about uh, how that crew's doing in the pretty near future. Of course, bringing all the oxygen and water that the crew will need in big tanks is prohibitively uh, huge and, and a big mess. And so like uh, Jane and I did in Biosphere 2 for two years, we will drink the same water. The crew will drink the same water over and over again, breathe the same oxygen over and over again. In fact, the crew's drinking water will be recycled from urine and perspiration. It's processed through a distillation and filtration systems, and they'll probably drink the same water you know, every other day. Um, much like a catalytic converter in your car, we'll get the contaminants out of the atmosphere by uh, oxidizing them and treating them just the way is done on the International Space Station. Of course, the crew will consume oxygen and produce carbon dioxide and water. We'll scrub that carbon dioxide and water out of the air and through a series of chemical processes, remake the oxygen available for the crew to breathe you know, over and over again as the cycle goes on. Uh, sort of like a submarine, everything is designed to be serviced from inside the vehicle. Uh, we d do not at this point anticipate the need for extravehicular activity. Uh, it uh, will all be inside, all the systems serviceable by the crew inside. Uh, the slide here shows a conceptual idea of uh, how to create the pressurized volume. That turns out to be one of the most mass expensive aspects of the mission. Uh, what you see there is an inflatable uh, conceptually, we're also looking at a rigid habitat, a small capsule. We need to keep the capsule as small as we can because of the very high reentry speeds and keep as much of the mass uh, over into the habitat module. Uh, obviously, solar rays. And we have the advantage that we don't actually have to let go of the uh, stage that does the trans-Mars burn. There's one big burn, and that's leaving Earth, and all the rest is minor course corrections, and we come back around so we can bring that stage with us, as shown in this graphic, to serve as a radiation protection in the event of a coronal mass ejection, and John's going to talk a lot more of that soon. The, uh, the total volume we're looking at is uh, 1,200 cubic feet, approximately, about 35 cubic meters. About half that volume is filled up with the food, life support equipment, <coughs> water tanks, fares, things like that. So you have something like 600 cubic feet of living space, and Jane will talk a bit more about that as we go along. We've managed to scrub the system mass, including mass growth allowances and the like, down to about 10 tons. The first reaction when anybody hears 10 tons is, oh, my God, that's way too yeah. Just We're orbiting spacecraft or more than that. But if you then go and you peel back all the things we don't need to do, we don't need proximity operations, we don't need a docking system, we don't need a, you know, there's a whole series of functions that make this mission simple, and as you take those functions away, you also take mass away. Uh, about half of that 10 tons, which is everything excluding propulsion, is the life support system, and the other half is roughly creating the, both the capsule and the inflated habitat module. Um, it appears, and we're happy to say, that uh, several options exist uh, for getting those 10 tons onto the trajectory that uh, was described by Dennis. Uh, you'll see in the publication uh, we used available on the website uh, information as SpaceX for our existence proof of how to do this. 
uh, all we've really been in communication with SpaceX at all is simply to confirm that those numbers were accurate. Uh, there, uh, we, this was really done as an, as an independent study. We're looking at several other options. Some options require two launches and uh, is more complicated in low Earth orbit. The simplicity really comes as the once you do the trans-Mars injection burn. So a variety of options are being looked at, and uh, we'll, uh, that will, of course, impact the cost and is work going on right now. NASA had an amazing can-do spirit when we came to them and said, uh, we want to partner with you. This is, we think, fits as a beautiful little puzzle piece into the current program of record. We don't want any money from NASA. We're not trying to change how the money is spent. But there is so much work going on in deep space, advanced exploration systems, technologies, that we just want to partner with you on developing those technologies and give NASA all that we learn. It's a philanthropic venture. We're not trying to hold on to intellectual property. Uh, but help catalyze that work as well. Uh, and then where need be, we will reimburse NASA for the work being done. Uh, as Dennis said, we have a signed Space Act agreement uh, with NASA in a partnership developing the reentry strategies and the thermal protection system. And it was done in record time. People were working hard, nights making it happen. I, I can't say enough fabulous things about what this experience has been working with NASA. I mean, just a tremendous can-do spirit. Uh, so we're, we're thrilled and, and we really want to deepen that relationship. Obviously, this is something that we see augmenting uh, the current program of record. Speaking of being thrilled, I am absolutely tickled pink to announce that Joe Rothenberg uh, will be our uh, chairman of an advisory and review board for us. Um, Joe doesn't yet really know what that means yet. Uh, and I think we're all trying to figure that out, too. Um, he, he is on Paragon's board of directors and is a very highly respected in space enterprise. Among many amazing accomplishments, he was the associate administrator for spaceflight, having been responsible for the space shuttle, International Space Station, and all of NASA's space operations and space communications programs. I spoke with Joe last night and communicated to me to be clear <laughs> This is conceptually feasible, but you've got four years and eight, ten months to do this. Uh, so we've got, you know, a lot to go. So really be clear, there is, you know, we see a concept of how to get this done, and an amazing team and amazing level of support has come out for this, and uh, Joe is jumping right in with both feet to help us make it happen. We, we live in a time when more human spacecraft are being developed in America than all in, in American history combined up to this era. People representing a wide range of industries have uh, approached us from oil and gas on that, you name it. There is such a thirst in American industry to, to participate in this and such a wealth and diversity of spacecraft and launch systems being developed uh, that there really are multiple options for basically every function we need. All the work to date shows the mission is possible, just barely. One interesting result of the study is, is really a demonstration that the capabilities of Orion and the Space Launch System are required for a mission to really explore Mars with a crew of scientists. What we've shown is that we can just barely, every 15 years, fly by Mars with the systems we have right now. The program of record is really what is needed, and we're just trying to be a stepping stone to help accelerate that uh, and it, it, it's been really interesting going through this study and realizing there's only so much you can do with what we've got, and the program of record really needs to happen. So um, 
even just to get this far, the mission is required a, really the great tradition of industry, academia, and government working in a partnership. Um, and, you know, as I was uh, sort of preparing this this morning, I got an email, um, and uh, the, the uh, it was for uh, from a, a Maximilian Gardinelli, six-year-old boy, and uh, he sent uh, sent a $10 donation. He said, I want to be one of the first to make a donation. The note said that he's going to watch this press conference with his father because this is my Apollo, six years old. I truly believe America can get this mission done, and I'm personally committed to seeing this mission through. Thank you, Tabor. I guess uh, Maximilian's probably not married, so he's probably he's, he can't go on this one. But the next one, for sure. The real question is, can humans survive the rigors of such a trip? There are all kinds of medical and health issues, of course, uh, that need to be considered. The chief medical officer for Inspiration Mars has made it his business and his career to understand these issues intricately. In addition to his work keeping shuttle crews healthy, he most recently was the medical director of the Red Bull Stratos mission, in which Felix Baumgartner set the world record for a freefall parachute jump. You might have seen that one. Uh, please welcome Dr. Jonathan Clark. Thanks, everyone. It's truly an honor to be here and, and with this, uh, this wonderful group uh, with such an inspirational program ahead. Um, you know, I, I, when uh, Tabor asked me to join the team, um, I said, you know, I love challenges, and uh, I've spent my whole career with challenges. And, uh, of course, most of my space uh, um, background in, in supporting sh uh, shuttle crews and and uh, other endeavors is about escaping from spacecraft, which in this case is probably the farthest thing we'd want to do. So I'm going to have to retool a lot of my uh, paradigm in, in uh, crew escape, although I think maybe in the future we might see, uh, you know, free falling from, um, from uh, Mars' uh, upper atmosphere. Um, my role in this is to uh, represent the academic leg of the three legs of this uh, Program. This, the, the support comes from really the incredible uh, uh, experience that we've gained through NASA and other space programs through our industry's uh, might and, inter and uh, entrepreneurship and then the academic prowess that our country brings to the table. And really, uh, it's a rekindled effort uh, following what happened in Apollo where you had academia, industry, and, and government joining forces to uh, accomplish a noble task like going to the moon. And so this is going to be the Apollo 8 moment for our next generation. And for me, it wasn't about the uh, demonstration of technical capabilities to keep somebody alive. It's about inspiring our children, particularly my son, and all our kids and grandkids. And to me, this really um, strikes a deep personal note. Um, Having said that, we got to get to the business at hand, which is to keep uh, the crew alive for, uh, you know, just shy of a year and a half mission in deep space, which we have limited experience in. But we do have a lot to go on. We, for a number of years, have done uh, life sciences research on crews. We have over 100 person years of experience in microgravity. So we know that crews can survive microgravity and for the period of time that we're exposed 
on this mission. It's certainly that shouldn't be a showstopper. Deep space is another matter. We're not protected by the uh, the uh, magnetic belts around the Earth, um, so we're going to have to contend with the issues about radiation. And that's uh, that's where I hope to harness the powers of the academic uh, community. Um, we're going to be using um, a new approach that we've now started to employ in medicine, which is a personalized approach, personalized medicine, using uh, individualized analysis, genomics and proteomics, which is analyzing the genes and the proteins that each individual carries in an attempt to tailor-make a program in support of the mission itself. Uh, we also are going to be using some novel approaches uh, that are uh, being explored right now in protecting crews from radiation, uh, including things like uh, free radical scavengers and and uh, trying to reduce reactive oxygen species, which are known to be a factor. So do we have our work cut out for us? Yes, um, absolutely. And we're really fortunate because we've already gained data from the, uh, the Mars Science Lab Curiosity uh, Deep Space Transit, and we had analysis of that radiation environment. And it looks from the time frame that we're going that we'll be well below the career limit for uh, the crew ages that we're looking at, which are going to be middle age, my age, and about that. So um, radiation is, a, is certainly a concern, but it's not an absolute showstopper. And I think uh, I always like to, uh, to close with... Uh, the quote of, from uh, Helen Keller, and she said, life is either a daring adventure or nothing, and we owe this to the next generation. Thank you. Keeping uh, the crew healthy in mind and body on a 501-day mission in a spacecraft the size of a small Winnebago, no small challenge. Uh, no abort, uh, and the crew will be, uh, need a system that is reliable, uh, but also fixable on their own. Uh, it's safe to say no two people will have ever been more alone than the crew of this mission. Our next speaker has thought long and hard about ways to keep humans alive and in well uh, and well in isolated and adverse circumstances. Uh, while she was in the biosphere too, she was responsible for the farm. Now, there won't be a farm on this mission, uh, but having enough food, water, and air, and coming up with a, day, a way of dealing with the um, impurities, shall we say, is no small task. Please welcome Jane Pointer. Thank you, Miles, and good afternoon, everybody. So I think it goes without saying that it's going to be an incredible honor for these two crew members to be on this mission and be the ambassadors for humanity, the first people to have ever laid eyes on, on the planet Mars. But it's not necessarily going to be a very easy trip. So I think one way to think about it is this. It's a really long road trip. You're jammed into an RV that goes the equivalent of 32,000 times around the Earth, and you come get out for about a year and a half, and you've got everything in there with you, jammed inside. Now, let's remember there, it is in microgravity, so there is no up or down, so you can use the, there is no ceiling, right? So you can use all the walls and the floor, so 
I was, Dennis was talking the other day about what it was like being up in the International Space Station. And he says, you know, you really don't want a giant space. It actually feels good to have a small space. All right, Dennis, that sounds great. <laughs> and they'll have about 3,000 pounds of dehydrated food, mm, yummy, that they get to rehydrate with water the same water that they drank two days earlier because, as Tabor mentioned, they will be recycling it over and over again. And they're going to be really, really busy. There's going to be a lot of science for them to do because we are going to be reaching out to the scientific community to get all kinds of, of uh, experiments and observations that they can be doing during the journey. They'll be reaching back to Earth and talking to kids, talking to people, um, they're also going to have to be maintaining themselves, doing hours of exercise every day, and they're going to have to be maintaining all of the systems inside this vehicle, including their life support system. And in fact, the life support system is one of the challenges we have to get ready and fully tested in time for this mission. Now, we have decades of history in this. I mean, between NASA and industry, there's actually an awful lot to start with. And as Tabor mentioned in our baseline study, we used ISS technologies. And our team has been doing a whole architecture study for this and actually has a system that closes and uh, provides all of the basic needs for the crew using ISS technologies with a few adaptations. And the adaptations are necessary because... In lower Earth orbit, you don't need to have everything as recycling as you will need to have on your way to Mars. Um, there will also, we will be strategically inserting some technologies to allow for some level of greater simplicity. And simplicity is really important because not only does that generally mean that your system is smaller and lighter, it usually means it's a little more robust. And robustness is something that we must have in our life support system. As I think you've heard already a couple of times today, there is no abort scenario. Once they've left planet Earth, they ain't getting off that bus. So we had better make sure that this life support system is made to last. Uh, there's more details about this in the paper um, that is coming out on Sunday that if you're interested, you can, you can read all about. Psychological and behavioral health. That's another challenge of this mission, I think. Um, there is a precedent, numerous precedents, in fact. Uh, the longest stay in space, that record is held by a Russian, and he was in space uh, continuously for 438 days. Uh, we recently have seen the successful completion of Mars 500, where six people were enclosed in a capsule on the Earth. Um, it was a Russian experiment. I mean, people have been wintering over in Antarctica. I mean, there's all kinds of precedents that we can point to to say that people can live in these enclosed environments for an extended period of time. However, it's not necessarily easy for these individuals, and sometimes it actually sort of affects their behavior. Uh, there's actually a, a branch of psychology called Isolated Confined Environment Psychology that studies these things, and they've studied people in the Antarctic and going on long missions and in space and in submarines. Uh, and it turns out that there's a constellation of symptoms that tends to emerge. Um, when Tabor and I were in Biosphere 2, um, we were there for two years and 20 minutes, and... Um, we certainly saw some of those symptoms emerging amongst our crew as well. 
uh, we had mood swings. There was depression, uh, particularly during the third quarter. We broke into warring factions, which is often common. And in fact, for about 18 months of the mission, some of the crew members barely spoke to other crew members, only enough to actually operate the biosphere. And the point here is that it could have been dangerous and it certainly affected the creativity with which we could address the challenges that we had inside Biosphere 2. For us, we ended up, some of us ended up seeking external support, which was extremely helpful. And so, of course, that's what we, we will be offering the crew on Inspiration Mars. They will get psychological, psychological support during the mission. They will get extensive training before the mission in this because there is a lot of training you can do to help. And then there's, of course, the crew selection process. And that will be a rigorous process to make sure that the people we select are resilient and can, in fact, maintain an upbeat and happy attitude in the face of adversity. But there was a positive side to being inside Biosphere 2 and in this isolated situation. And for me, it was that I was in there sharing it with somebody with whom I had great trust, great respect, and with whom I was very close. And that was the person who is now my husband, Tabor. And this was extremely important, I think, and will be extremely important for the crew that goes on Inspiration Mars. For us, you know, we had challenges inside Biosphere 2, and so it was extremely helpful to have somebody that I could problem solve with, that I trusted, that I knew very well. But it was also fantastic to have the opportunity to be there and share the experience when there were those wondrous moments, those moments when we talked about how fascinating it was to really have the visceral experience of being embedded in our biosphere and that we were exchanging the oxygen and carbon atoms with the plants around us. We would sit off to dinner and sometimes fantasize about what it would be like to be in a space base on Mars or sometimes we would even eat a pretend chocolate mousse and drink an imaginary cappuccino. And all of that is to say that the idea that we have a man and a woman going on this mission is an important idea. They also are going to be a trusted, tested couple. And I think that's, that's important. I can say that from my own experience, it was an extraordinarily value to me, and I think I can also speak for Tabor to have that, because I think it helped us be productive members of that crew. And so I believe that these two crew members that go on this, having that same backbone of their relationship will be of tremendous support to them during hard times. After all, they are going to be millions of miles away from home. But it's also important that this is a man and a woman because they represent humanity. After all, we are more or less 50% men and 50% women. And what I think is even more important is that it represents our children. That whether they're a girl or a boy, they see themselves reflected in that crew. And that is, after all, what makes this mission all worthwhile, our children. 
Inspiration is the namesake of this mission and of the foundation. Imagine a 13-year-old girl and her classmates getting a tweet from the female astronaut at Mars looking down on that planet for the first time and describing what she's seeing, the role model of these kids back on Earth, and then turning around and looking back at planet Earth and describing that little pale blue dot that she's seeing where those students are right then, that dot that is barely indistinguishable from those other stars surrounding it, and reminding those students that that's where all the rest of humanity is, that's where all life as we know it is, at least until now. These two astronauts will be able to take the world along with them for the ride. All of us will be able to participate in that event through their, their stories and their adventures, the science that they do. I believe that no event in our foreseeable future will have as much impact on our children as Inspiration Mars. After all, it is, the, it is the, one of the cornerstones of this mission to reignite excitement in science, technology, engineering, in math, and math. The daring Apollo missions inspired an entire generation of innovators and people who dared to think large. An Inspiration Mars is certainly an audacious mission, and it challenges our children to live audacious lives. We are already partnering with educators, with prominent people, institutions, organizations in the area of education to make sure that we have a really exciting education program because revitalizing STEM is so vital to our mission and inspiration is so vital to STEM. We are fully committed to undertaking this mission and intend to do everything possible to take advantage of this unique opportunity for America and for America's children. Thank you, Jane. Questions in just a minute, Seth. Inspiration Mars will capture the imagination of young men and women all over the world. We just heard about that $10 donation. That'll be the first of many, we hope. What is it uh, if 10 million kids give $10? We're there, right? That's it. So we're on our way. Um, and talk about a teachable moment for classrooms all over the world, really. Um, to talk about how the mission might help inspire young people to pursue careers in science, technology, engineering, and math, we turn to some experts in the field. We're honored to have uh, Nancy Conrad and Dr. June Scobie Rogers in the house with us. Nancy is the wife of the late Pete Conrad. Nancy has taken her experiences as a former school teacher and Pete's passion for spaceflight and entrepreneurialism to create the fantastic Conrad Foundation and Spirit of Innovation Challenge for high school students. June followed her dreams to overcome great adversity in her youth, becoming a school, a school teacher, and later turning tragedy into triumph by founding the Challenger Centers for Space Science Education. Welcome to both of you ladies. i got to pull it down so I can see you guys. Um, thank you for the invitation to the future. This is, like, so awesome. I can't believe it. Um, 
It was actually almost 45 years ago that my late husband, Pete, strapped himself into a Saturn V for a historical journey on a pinpoint landing on the lunar surface. I love the landing site, the ocean of storms. Doesn't that get you? So, you know, this was a time in this country when education was enormous. There was a can-do attitude. There was collaboration, as we heard John say, industry, government, and academia all worked together. This whole country sent Pete, and of course the other guys, to the moon, and more importantly, returning safely to Earth, as Pete used to say. So as we look back at Apollo and that tremendous exponential growth in education that came as a result of it and the exponential growth in science and technology, we're now invited to once again grow and collaborate and work together, government, industry, academia, to once again challenge young people and to give them the opportunity to innovate and to be part of a process. This time, kids get to go on the ride. And I'm very excited to uh, work with with the team, and thank you so much for this fabulous opportunity. Um, I'm working also with my good friend, Joe Rothenberg, who is going to chair our advisory board and help me because I need adult supervision at all times. Um, We will be putting together a very robust, wide, deep education effort that will be inclusive, that will ask not-for-profits that work in this sector, uh, government, industry, academia, real leaders in education and particularly in, in science, technology, engineering, math, and innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, my special special loves uh, in honor certainly of my husband. Um, we will all work together and we'll grow a very wide and a very deep education effort where families and students and teachers and communities can participate in this historic adventure. And so as I look toward this, what I think about most is, you know, yes, we need to leave a better country for our children, and this effort will certainly work and do a long way towards that. But not only do we need to leave a better country for our children, we also need to leave better children for our country. So this is an opportunity to grow an innovation generation, and I will invite all of you to join us in multiple ways, and stay tuned because this is going to be one heck of an effort that is going to embrace many, many entities. Thank you. June? June, June and I are sort of, we represent the small women in STEM. <laughs> and I introduce you to speak about what your efforts are. Thank you, Nancy. You said that beautifully. And thank you, Miles, for that introduction. But most of all, thanks, Mr. Tito. Thanks for your inspiration. And I think what inspired you as a young man will continue to inspire the youth of our nation and in particular their teachers, so the teachers will be able to work with them in continuing this dream that you've set stage for. But to tell you the truth, we at Challenger Center have one up on you, Mr. Tito, because for 25 years our students at Challenger Centers have been flying missions to Moon and Mars already. And we'll invite you to join us on one of those missions. Uh, But, you know, I see us in this time period since 
shuttle has landed, I see us in what I call an inspiration gap. We have inspiration going on, certainly. Those folks who um, helped us launch and set up in space, the Hubble, and all of the uh, inspiration from those beautiful photographs that are coming to us. They inspire us to look at these things, to study them. And certainly there's inspiration that NASA continues with. Isn't it grand what, what we're learning about the rover up on Mars with curiosity? Aren't we all curious about that? But what inspires the students? We've talked about our children being inspired, but our teachers, our educators, they need, they need inspiration to talk to the kids about the hard subjects, why they study, why science and math is important, why technology is important. And so, Mr. Tito, I see you as filling the inspiration gap. And I'm proud to know you. Something that engages students is important. They can be inspired, but hands-on engagement is what the trick is all about in education. Any teacher can tell you. Hands-on learning. And at Challenger Center, we have a great deal of experience of working with astronauts on the International Space Station as we downlink to students, not only across our nation, but around the world, to have students work with them to help solve problems and to have questions answered that they're curious about. So for over 25 years, we have been working this very subject with students, and we look forward to more opportunities and furthering these opportunities along with you in what you've inspired us with. So my final statement to Mr. Tito is to invite him next week to join us at a Challenger Learning Center to gain even more experience about flying a mission to Mars. All right. Won't be long before we get to questions, Seth. I know you're ready to go there. Our next speaker chairs the board of directors for an outstanding organization that champions and celebrates the advancement of women in the space industry. Women in Aerospace was founded 28 years ago and is dedicated to expanding women's opportunities for leadership and increasing their visibility in the aerospace community in the U.S. and internationally. The organization has grown from a small group to uh, include more than 1,500 individuals, representing 250 companies, 70 corporate members. Please help me welcome another extraordinary force in the space world to say a few words, Diane Sosa. Thank you, Miles. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, everybody, for the opportunity to come and speak with you. It's an honor and a pleasure speaking for women in aerospace. Um, as Miles described, we are an organization 28-plus years old. Um, we have been focusing on improving the representation of women in aerospace, both from a technical standpoint as well as a managerial standpoint. I'm proud to say that Women in Aerospace has a tremendous following of 
men as well. We have men on the board. So it is not just a women's organization. But the one thing we do have in common is that we breathe and dream the space dreams and space and aviation. And this is just such a wonderful thing to learn about today. Because as we all know, space with the sun setting of shuttle kind of took a little bit of a down part in dreams for our children. And our young engineers of today and those that are aspiring and hopefully those that are aspiring to follow those careers in the future. And women in aerospace work so closely, not just with the uh, early career professionals, but also with the young students and the young students as early as grade school. We have a task force that is solely committed on STEM. We um, have a lot of effort that is going on. We have um, goals and recommendations that we're following. And just hearing about Inspiration Mars today has just given us a breath of fresh air to help us instill the dreams into the children that may not know how wonderful space really is. So on behalf of Women in Aerospace, I thank you again for keeping the dream alive and inspiration and aspiration is what dreams are made of. And I look forward, as part of Women in Aerospace, to support every endeavor going forward on this great, great expedition. Thank you. All right. Last but not least, the Chief Executive Officer of the Space Foundation, whose mission is to advance space endeavors to inspire, enable, and propel humanity. That jives pretty well with what we've been hearing here. Uh, his organization is part educational insti uh, institution, part trade association, part think tank, and part international non-governmental policy organization. Please welcome Elliot Pullum. Thank you, Miles, and I promise I'm the last person standing between you and being able to ask some questions. Um, as uh, Miles said, uh, the mission of the Space Foundation is to advance space endeavors to inspire, enable, and propel humanity. It's a pretty short mission statement, but it's got some pretty powerful words in it. Today's announcement launches what I think is an incredibly powerful new platform for us to do exactly that. This, this mission is going to help us inspire new generations about the awesome potential of human beings, the potential to explore the solar system beyond low Earth orbit where we have been trapped for so many years. It's going to enable the space community to work together in new ways on an exciting, demanding new program that is going to test our mettle. It's going to demonstrate what we can do when we have a clear, concise, unambiguous mission at hand. And it's going to propel knowledge and technology forward while advancing the integration of traditional space organizations and entrepreneurial new space enterprise. This is a pioneering enterprise. As it happens, only a few hours ago, I had the opportunity to testify before the Space Subcommittee of the House Science Committee on the importance of a pioneering doctrine for space exploration and a pioneering purpose for NASA. Missions like this one, and organizations like Inspiration Mars and all parts of our space industrial base must be part of humankind's epic journey. My organization spends countless hours working with parents, teachers, students, 
informal and informal education programs aimed at addressing the STEM education crisis. After years of talking around the issue of NASA going from an agency with men on the moon to an agency capable only of operations in low Earth orbit to an agency that can no longer send its own astronauts into space, at last we have a daring mission of human space exploration that will inspire our students and teachers the way Apollo inspired all of us so many generations or so many, so many years ago. We are thrilled about what this mission could mean for America and the world. We're excited to be part of this journey, and we can't thank you, Dennis, and your team enough for leading us ahead. Thank you. Okay, we have a microphone somewhere. Deanna has a microphone. She'll bring it to you. And I know what you're all going to ask. I know the number one question. And the answer is no, they will not stop and ask for directions on the way. Uh, Seth, you get to go first. And state your name and affiliation, please. Seth Borenstein, Associated Press. For Dennis, I guess, and Tabor to start with. Um, what you presented to us in the papers, you said you had no almost no contact with SpaceX, but you're using what you downloaded as sort of what, how is, I guess I'm wondering how that is different from a, you know, a, a high school student's report. When you look at this, how are you going to make a 2018 deadline when you talk about a Falcon Heavy that is not yet built, then you're talking about all sorts of different design changes to them. Um, I guess you're not going to human rate them. Uh, are you going to have any kind of test flights, which, of course, as you know, most experts would tell you you need to do test flights first. The experts I sent this, you know, I talked to said their major concern is no test flights here. So you're taking unproven designs and uh, changing them in an unproven way with no test flights, and you plan to get this done in five years. I, uh, can you explain to me how this is going to work? I mean, what kind of magic, you know, and after that you're going to, you know, solve the budget problem? Um, and I guess, and, and, and for Jonathan, uh, I guess there's an, a, a giant issue of risk here. You know, you've got uh, uh, cosmic, you've got a, you know, a solar minimum with cosmic radiation issues. You've got all sorts of risks here. Is this what would be an unacceptable risk to NASA? Is that sort of one of the things that you're all based on? Can you give us a sense of the risk here? And is one of the reasons you can do this is because you're accepting risks that a government not just NASA, wouldn't accept. Is that part of the bargain? Let, let me uh, – I, I think this is, is really great because we have to ask these kinds of questions to, to treat this mission realistically. We have to deal with the hard questions. Um, let's go back to Apollo. Uh, Saturn V had its first launch in 1967. That was – uh, without crew. Uh, in December of 1968, they had their first uh, crewed mission, and that happened to be Apollo 8, and they went around the moon. The uh, space shuttle Columbia had its first launch in uh, 19... 81, I believe. Uh, never been launched before. It was a crewed mission. 
we have launch vehicles now that are operational. We have Delta IV. We have Atlas V. Uh, by uh, 2017, we, we will have uh, SLS. Um, as Tabor mentioned, we have a lot of equipment now, more than you know, we did in the, in the 60s, and we're able to get a much more complex mission, uh, Apollo, done from 1961 to 1968, at least as far as the uh, Apollo 8. We have such better technology now and experience. We have 50 years of experience. We didn't have any experience then. We were using slide rules then. You know, we have computer-aided software. Uh, You know all of this. We can do things a lot faster. We just need a commitment. I'm not uh, worried about getting this done from that standpoint. Um, the, The vehicles are there. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, we have time to get it together. I'm more concerned right now about the critical path technology that we discussed, the life support, you know, the radiation, the reentry. And that, what, what, there was an embedded question for John in there, which was about that, that issue of risk. Well, there's no question that this is a, a, a risky and bold endeavor. Um, and there, you know, we've we've broken them down into the, you know, the, the the constraints, the microgravity associated degradation on the human body, the behavioral health and psychological issues uh, inherent with a confined space, and then there's radiation. And uh, we are obviously based on, you know, limited data, uh, both human data and actually deep space radiation data. Um, it's our best estimate of what we could potentially experience during this mission, and it's based on what we got from Mars Curiosity. Um, and then using NASA's risk uh, criteria, which is based on their 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 cutoff is about a is a three percent excess cancer mortality rate in a, in a lifetime. And uh, there's no question that when you compare a shuttle mission. Uh, which might be a 0.1% increase excess risk to a station mission, which might be, you know, less than at 1%, that we're at that 3% excess cancer mortality limit or in that ballpark. Given the range of confidence that we have, um, you're, certainly, you're certainly there. So the real issue here is in understanding the risk in, in an informed capacity. The crew would understand that. The team supporting it would understand that. And that ultimately, that is going to be the decision based on that informed con- uh, consent. So the crew would know about it. They would have to decide, you know, I realize that I'm going to have an excess cancer risk. Uh, but, but quite honestly, you can have uh, an excess cancer risk from smoking, from living in certain locations. Um, so ultimately, it's going to have to be those personal decisions. Um, NASA is a government agency and constrained by radiation worker uh, criteria for astronauts has a, a different criteria than we would have. Um, but don't believe that, that we are um, looking at this uh, lightly. This is a super uh, concern. That's why we've got this personalized medicine approach, um, which is really just uh, in its infancy. It's very costly to do. 
Um, but the other thing is, um, the real issue is from radiation is dealing with acute radiation effects that affect crew performance because so many of the activities of the vehicle's operation are dependent on the crew. So our focus is making sure the crew are still live, viable, and operational. You get back, you have cancer, we can deal with that on Earth with uh, the terrestrial uh, medicines that we have available. So the focus is really uh, minimizing the effects of acute radiation on crew performance. I just want to make one quick uh, statement on, on risk, and you really pushed risk, and I think it's great that you brought it up because it really has to get addressed up front. And, and I've briefed a lot of people about this so far, and I've gotten so many times, look, that's the kind of risk America used to be able to take. That's the kind of bold thing we used to be able to do. We don't do that anymore. It's, it's way too risky. And, and we shirk away from risk. And I, I think that you know, even just seriously contemplating this mission recalibrates what we believe is a risk worth taking for America and a, a bold move worth standing up and throwing your heart out in front of you and running to catch up to make happen for America. And, and I, that recalibration is a very important part, I think, of what this country needs to do and this mission helps center around. It's my assessment that American industry is up to this challenge. There is lots of options of ways to get this done. We have an amazing industrial base, and it's about time America stood up and improved to the rest of the world. We've got a bar none the best industrial base in the world. Let's show it to them. Let's go do this mission. All right, question from Frank in the corner there. Deanna, if you could head over that way. I'm Frank Mooring with Aviation Week. Um, Let's talk a little bit about milestones. You, have, you must have some long lead items, both in the technical side and also in the human factor side. So what are your, your early milestones for actually making your five-year deadline? And also for Dr. Clark, you know, when, when are you going to start recruiting a crew? How are you going to do it? And how much of a process, or if you could describe a little bit the process that will go into actually selecting that crew. You mentioned personalized medicine. Um, but more than that, the psychological screening and everything else that you'll be doing. I'll start off on the milestones real quick. Um, Dennis has committed to essentially keep the program on schedule, which is why he's committed to, out of his own pocket, fund the first two years. That means the team doesn't have to worry for two years about money. We have to just go get it done. It's a tremendous leg up on any program to get that kind of commitment up front, and it's all sort of at risk. If this doesn't all work out, you know, it, it doesn't work out. So the main things that we're after right now, funded work, is obviously the life support system, the control system. That's funded work being done right now. We're coming in very fast. We have a signed Space Act agreement with uh, NASA, and that work is going on right now. Uh, we have to address and analyze and be very careful about configurations and the radiation issue and crew health, any long-term issues in crew health. John is leading that effort, and we have to get our actual flight configuration, launch configuration, capsule selection, et cetera, down, and that strategy put together. And that's going to be one of the main strategic uh, lines of work that uh, Joe Rothenberg is going to be helping us figure out how to get that done. We, we see a lot of puzzle pieces out there. It looks like we can put some scenarios together that work. Uh, industry is tremendously excited. And that's uh, really could be one of the long leads, and so that's the fourth leg of the the pieces of work that have to get started right now to hold schedule. Well, 
Well, I mean, those are these are really great questions, and obviously, this is going to be a milestone-driven program, and it's going to be conducted uh, in parallel. So, as the uh, vehicle systems, the, uh, the the capsule life support systems, and the human health uh, and performance uh, systems are evolving, they're all going to be going on uh, very rapidly. Uh, because this program has just been, you know, essentially formalized in public, um, I've been busy um, contacting colleagues. And uh, to say that I'm leading this effort is really somewhat of a misstatement. I'm trying to facilitate it because really uh, it, it involves um, um, unleashing the academic prowess of this country uh, in every way possible. And so fortunately, uh, because the institute I work at is heavily related in space, uh, once I got permission to start talking about it, I started to ask the, to connect with the experts, and we're already, as we speak, starting to formulate those um, um, critical paths and, and uh, critical paths to success using some of these advanced uh, medical capabilities. We're going to be heavily reliant on NASA's 50-plus uh, years of human spaceflight experience and their legacy and how they've selected and uh, and uh, crew. But one of the things I'd like to point out is that a big part of this is the pre-flight and pre-mission optimization. So we, we would do things like enhancing their physical um, uh, stamina. Um, there's a, a variety of different things by understanding the genomics process. And believe me, I'm no expert at that or in radiation, but I, I know the people that will, and I'm enlisting their aid, um, is, to, is to take um, take this and, and to do everything we can to individually protect that person. Um, and really, in, in some ways, it's, it's leading the, the forefront in medicine because I see in 20 years that will be the standard of healthcare practice uh, as opposed to now where it's kind of population-based and expert opinion-based. So um, this is a brave new world here, and we're taking advantage of the fact that there's folks out there that are very visionary in seeing how that could be uh, applied to this particular endeavor. When would you like to see a crew and backup select? Uh, well, um, I would say uh, six months to a year would be a good uh, start. I think there's going to be a solicitation for uh, candidates for that. Um, we're, we're, uh, because I still work very closely with my NASA flight surgeon colleagues who do this uh, routinely. Every two years they'll do a selection cycle. And they've spent an inordinate amount of time in in enhancing their screening. So they do essentially full body scans and probe every orifice you can imagine and <laughs> test everything to, with the idea of trying to uh, detect any preconditions, uh, 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 pre you know, uh, or early uh, malignancies or early medical issues that could be a problem. Because bear in mind, this, this mission is not going to have the sophisticated healthcare capabilities that we know and appreciate on Earth. Um, you might even have better care in uh, rural Africa. Um, so we have to screen and, and prevent to the maximum extent possible crew health issues and also to optimize the crew, uh, knowing that there are going to be degrading effects along the way. So getting them in the best uh, possible physical and mental shape is going to be a key factor. Let's uh, take question over here. Deanna, let's take the, this young lady over here. Hi, Clara Moskowitz with Space.com. And you've been talking about this as an American mission. I'm wondering if you're open to, to partnering with international space agencies or international industries. Is the crew selection only open to United States citizens? Thanks. 
Yeah. <laughs> you want me to move this? <laughs> well, you know, we have we have uh, specified this mission as an American mission, and uh, certainly uh, the crew will, you know, be American. Um, as far as you know, various subsystems, I believe you know, one of the uh, subsystems we're looking at, namely the inflatable, uh, is b uh, built in Canada. So there will be uh, areas that will be provided by you know, international uh, uh, businesses. Uh, but uh, this is going to be an American mission. I think an important aspect of American leadership is engaging uh, other nations along the way, and, and I think we have to look at that as we go forward. Can you say what kind of people will they be? Will they be academics or pilots? Or what, hmm. what kind of people will they be? Do you imagine? Not the best and the brightest. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, we, we do know they have to have an amazing mechanical skill because they're going to be repairing and rebuilding and refurbishing that... Right. 55 Chevy of a life support system. We're going to have to be pretty even keel. Yeah. Right stuff times 10. The, resilient. Uh, I would yeah. say, yeah, it's, it's a, you, you could get into all kinds of debates about resilience and, and all of that, but, but there's a certain profile of people that um, handle long duration that may be slightly different from the people that, that do re short duration really well. You know, the kinds of people that can take anything for a short period of time. Not necessarily, could be, but not necessarily the same people that can handle long duration, just keep chucking it at me every day kind of people. That's, that's a little different. So, so it will be a, a kind of an interesting process. You know, Question. We're lucky because we have a lot of experience in um, – uh, historical reviews of polar expeditions where these kinds of issues are raised. And they're, and they're right. There's, a, there's almost a, uh, a psychological profile that you have um, that we can, we can draw on. Question right here. Go ahead. Hi, Noel Waghorn from the AP. You mentioned long duration. Some of us have been journalists in here for way too long, so we just keep getting it chucked at us. Um, I just <laughs> wanted to ask a follow-up question. You mentioned Apollo, and that was certainly... Uh, at a time during the space race where the, the government basically gave NASA a blank check and said, get to the moon before the Soviets do. So they were, they were pouring money into the program, and certainly we haven't seen that kind of treatment for NASA these days. And so I'm wondering, beyond the two years out for, for your personal cash flow, are you looking at sponsorships? Will there be a Frito-Lay logo on the side of it? What's in it for the sponsors? And just a, um, a more a broader question. Uh, my son will be uh, five, roughly, when this mission takes off. Uh, and what do you see as the future of the – will there be a space race? Are we going to see an inspiration Mars, India, and China, and Brazil? And, and, or will there be a space race anymore? Or is this uh, an American mission for Americans, for American pride? Or is it a mission for humanity? First of all, uh, you know, there's no expectation of, of any funding from NASA other than, you know, purchasing data or performing experiments for NASA. And not that, that that will be nickel and dime. That will, you know, we will charge 
as much as we can get away with. <laughs> but uh, seriously, uh, you know, we have to raise money uh, from individuals. And, uh, you know, philanthropic efforts occur all the time, you know, with art museums and, uh, you know, many, many efforts. Uh, you know, just recently, uh, it was a fundraising effort in uh, Southern, or it's still taking place in Southern California for the California Space Museum to build the uh, structure for the Endeavor, which it will be located there. And the uh, uh, person that's responsible for raising that money is a friend of mine. And, you know, I know his experience in raising money. It, 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 it wasn't that difficult. If you have a good idea, you can raise money for it. Now, there are media rights here. There are sponsorships. Uh, you know, industry is going to want to join in. Uh, it's a flagship mission. It doesn't set any precedent. It's a one-shot deal. So, you know, if you're providing some kind of widget, uh, you might be able to provide it for a low low cost. This is just a one-shot deal. As far as uh, the other nations that you mentioned, you know, I don't know if there will be any response from other spacefaring nations for the 2018 opportunity. I tend to doubt it, but I wouldn't rule it out. But I'll tell you one thing. If we don't fly 18, the next low-hanging fruit is in 31, and we better have uh, our crew trained to recognize other flags because they're going to be flying out there as well, in my opinion. Another question from uh, over here, Deanna. Thank you. Uh, Hal Hudson from New Scientist. Uh, first of all, a question for Jonathan. Will the genomics and proteomics that you mentioned be used in the crew selection process from the beginning, or at what point will that come in? And then a general question, which is about, you've talked about the radiation risks to humans, but what about the radiation risks to the advanced technologies that we're going to be relying to get us on to get us there? We saw the Dragon have issues recently getting to the ISS, and so 501 days bathed in radiation might be a bit of a problem. Well, th th those are really great points because, um, in fact, uh, the radiation environment that affects, uh, you know, specific areas like the nervous system also affect uh, high-density uh, integrated circuits. And ironically, the lower-tech systems are more re uh, re resistant to radiation effects. So um, maybe we need a lower-tech uh, avionics and also, um, you know, more resilient humans. The, 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 the issue about selection... Uh, using some of these advanced uh, screening tools like genomics and, and proteomics, I think is still up for debate. But I would s say that um, as the experience base grows in, in the academic um, medicine in this area, there are things that you might come to find that uh, would make it more or less suited <laughs> for a mission like this. Um, but ultimately, it's, you know, but genetics... And proteomics takes a, takes a large part of how we are, maybe 60%, but it's not the final part of it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's what makes us human. So I'd like to say that our, our goal in this endeavor from the medical side is to, in, is to optimize health by having a, 
personalized prescription on how we'll deal with issues and not use it per se as a selection tool, but that is still not entirely established. So just the computer radiation issue, part of what makes this mission possible is the tremendous depth of experience in deep space robotic missions that you know, exist in this country. And all of the, you know, these, uh, there's a whole ream of technical issues that this country knows very well how to do because we have a lot of very successful deep space missions that have been uh, done robotically. Question right here, Deanna. Hi, it's Michael Belfiore with Popular Mechanics. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about what you think the probable mission architecture might be. You mentioned this tantalizing you know, idea of uh, this uh, inflatable from a Canadian company. And also I'm really curious about the money involved. I know it's probably hard to predict, but Dennis, what have you committed personally? What dollar amount for the next two years? And what's the likely overall expense of the mission? Well, I, uh, just starting with the overall expense, um, of course, it's it's too early to tell. Um, if I had to guess, it would be probably less than, you know, what we typically spend for robotic missions to Mars. Uh, again, it's it's it uses a low Earth orbit architecture, and we're just adapting it to a, in effect, a very large Earth orbit that leaves Earth and comes back, it just happens to go out pretty far. But you're really flying this mission, you know, without a propulsion system on the spacecraft, you know, without EVAs, uh, you know, it's in the most simple form. So uh, compared to, say, the landing missions uh, that, you know, even if you could contemplate what an overall landing mission to Mars might cost, or even in today's dollars, what uh, the Apollo mission cost. Uh, you're talking about a factor of 100. This is really chump change compared to what we've heard before uh, about Mars. As far as the architecture, uh, you know, there are several launch vehicles out there that uh, represent potential candidates. Uh, you know, we're talking to various people. Uh, we have non-disclosure agreements, and you know, beyond that, I really can't say much other than there's a lot of interest. Uh, you know, if you had a launch vehicle, you might want it to be used. Yes, it's a one-shot deal. It's going to get a lot of publicity. You know, the Habitat's a great example. NASA has funded uh, inflatable Habitat development in the U.S. ILC makes a great inflatable. There's a thin red line in Canada makes a a great inflatable. Obviously, Bigelow has experience in inflatables. Uh, or the uh, folks at Orbital Sciences have a Cygnus module that's right about the right volume. You know, right there, I've got you know three pretty good options for a habitat uh, that are existing uh, work being done today by reputable uh, first-class aerospace firms. Oh, yeah. Financial commitment. How, how much? Two years. No, I mean a dollar amount. <laughs> Who knows? Two years. All right. Why don't you pass the microphone down to? Hello, Jane Lee with the National Geographic. You mentioned that um, you know the the systems on the spacecraft will be more human operated versus automated. Uh, 
do you have a backup plan for if one of them gets injured or can't perform their duties? <laughs> You're looking at me. <laughs> well, that's why we carry an extra crew. Uh, no, you know, that's a really good question. You know, we've done the analysis based on um, medical events in uh, analog environments. We have Antarctic, we have submarines, we have other. And, and it's it, it can be somewhere on the order of about um, a 7% incidence of a fairly significant medical issue um, in a, in a one-year period. Um, per crew. So um, what we're anticipating is potentially a 10 to 15 percent incidence of a significant event. We're going to try to do everything we can to reduce that number based on the screening, the proteomic and genomic analysis, et cetera, et cetera, and then try to do as best we can uh, with the space available. Uh, but a lot of this stuff is, you know, is inherently kind of MacGyvered. If, um, we, we are ultimately trying to reduce the risk by both the selection process and also prevention, uh, keeping them uh, from having an issue develop uh, in flight as opposed to having to to deal with it on orbit. But the, is it a risk? Sure it is. Um, maybe even a higher risk uh, than, than a 3% excess cancer mortality risk. All right. We'll take a couple more questions. Go ahead. Uh, Brian, Brian Bassack from The Washington Post. Uh, Mr. Tito, uh, I want to kind of respectively, uh, respectfully push you on a, on a point you made a minute ago. Uh, the, the flight comment you made uh, seems like space is becoming more and more international. The International Space Station was as much a diplomatic mission as it was a technical uh, mission. And I just can't help but wonder if one of your motivations here is to uh, beat China to, uh, to Mars. Beat China to Mars? Wouldn't I want to do that? <laughs> Wouldn't I want America to do that? Wouldn't you want America to do that? How many people don't want America to do that? <laughs> All right. Hi, I'm, Down Dan here. I'm Dan Vergano with USA Today. Uh, one thing I'm wondering is, you know, the title is, is Inspiration Mars, and you've talked a lot about the power of inspiration from this mission. Have you thought about uh, what the effect would be if you send these two people to Mars and you kill them on this mission? What kind of inspiration would that be? Risky, you know. I mean, uh, if we wanted a certain uh, guarantee, we wouldn't do this. We wouldn't. Uh, we would never send humans anywhere. Um, it's a really good point, and, and believe it or not, uh, we have to prepare for every inevitability, including one or both the crew members perishing, um, and the effects that might be if one does so before the other. Um, but these are things that have been experienced on uh, on uh, polar expeditions. Um, we actually have a plan that we're working on. Um, NASA had a plan for that very same inevit uh, inev uh, possibility as well, and we're heavily leveraging their experience. Um, but um, life is risky, and um, anything that's worth it is worth putting it all at, at stake for. Um, if, we th if we wanted a guarantee, um, we wouldn't be doing this. Um, Let me answer that also, because... One of the premises in, in searching for uh, alternative deep space missions that I was discussing earlier in my presentation was the concept of a free return and no critical propulsive maneuver required, no EVAs required, no docking required. So what you need 
is, you know, just to keep that life support system working. Of course, you will have spare, you will have extra gasket material, and you will have uh, a crew that's very mechanically inclined that could fix that 55 Chevy and take apart the engine if they had to. And, and it's not going to rely on automation. And you can calculate the probabilities. And I would not be comfortable uh, launching this mission with anything other than a 0.99 probability of the crew returning safely. And if you think back uh, when the crew launched on Apollo 11, uh, they were asked, what, what do you think the chances are? And they said, well, two out of three that we'll get back. And Mr. Tito, may I share in responding? After the Challenger accident, I was asked that question many times. And my response was always, without risk, there's no knowledge. There's no great discovery. There's no bold adventure. The greatest risk is to take risk. And your question was about inspiration. After the loss of Challenger and that beloved crew, our inspiration was to build Challenger Center. Yes, the inspiration lives. Thank you. Okay. Anybody else? I think we'll wrap it up. Everybody's here, obviously, available for one-on-ones if you have any further questions. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for your participation and your good questions. And uh, off to Mars we go.